I don't know if Perfect. we should go all the way back to the part where okay. I mentioned that I was dripping with good looks and charm. We got to get that in. Yeah. We got to get that so in. That's in. Are, those, we got that? Guys, that, we got that? Yeah, okay, we just, got thumbs up. That's, you know, the two things I get paid for around here, look good and be smart, and then, you know, hand it off to Tom. So, um, starting again, it, you know, it, do we want to go with that one, defending your hotel room? I think that was important. I don't know where, where the sound was or not. We're sorry about the technical difficulties. We'll blame that on Max. He gets all the credit when it goes well, so let's give him some of the problems when it goes poorly. Um, he's waving sheepishly over in the corner. So, um, yeah, right from the top. Tom, Got it. Uh, all right. Great. Defending your tent, <laughs> hotel room, RV, same as Castle Doctrine. And you know what? Maybe I'll, I'll bring this in, too. Folks, don't expect that you're just relying on the Castle Doctrine to defend yourself. Think about what, when you can use deadly force, and that is against an imminent deadly threat. So if, if it rises to that level, you can use your deadly force, you know, because you're facing an imminent deadly threat. So now we hand it over to the Castle Doctrine, you know, because that provides you maybe an extra level of protection. The extra level of protection. Let's just quickly touch on what that level of protection typically is. And for starters, as this should be implied in every single answer that we give today, check your local listings. Keep in mind that laws change with place and time. So it's going to be a big thing to keep in mind. But Castle Doctrine typically basically gives somebody, so for instance, in most states if there's a deadly force incident and you're going to be using or invoking your privilege, your rights to self-defense, you have to be able to show more or less, again check your local listings folks, that you were basically in reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm. In other words, before I can use deadly force, I have to show that there was a deadly threat. That's another way of showing it. What Castle Doctrine usually does, put really simply, again, check your local listings, is that if certain triggering conditions and criteria are met, I'm in my home, someone breaks into my home or is in the process of breaking into my home, I don't have to exactly show that they were armed with a knife, they are armed with, with some sort of weapon, or they yeah. intended to be a deadly threat. Basically, triggering criteria is met, we check some boxes, okay, that's a deadly threat, and I can respond with and, deadly force. And, and then it is the prosecutors or court or whatever must assume that the person who's coming in already intended to use deadly force It's an assumption, yeah. but it's a rebuttable presumption that can be made. Okay. So the prosecutor can always try to refute it. So if it was Girl Scouts trying to open up your screen door to leave the cookies there, you can't just start plugging holes through that front door, folks. Yeah, just, absolutely. Just yeah. keep that in and, mind. Yeah. And, and Castle Doctrine doesn't protect you against something Doing, doing something patently stupid like that, like shooting blindly through a door or something of that nature. So uh, again, um, the, the best case scenario here is to rely on the imminent deadly threat right. criteria and the reasonable person criteria there. Um, and then also check your local listings and know what's going it on. It is, so. but, that, but what Kevin started with is exactly where I would, I would tell people to start with, which is the fact that really at the end of the day, all these laws come back to that reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm, keeping in mind that the formulation varies, but basically deadly threat, deadly response is what you can do. Now let's take this to the actual question at hand, which is can I use castle doctrine if I'm in an RV, if I'm in a tent, if I'm in a sleeping bag or something like that? Mm -hmm. And the very shorter version, maybe the better version of what I gave before is Definite, maybe, probably not, but who knows, maybe check your local listings. Let me give you a quick example. Maybe I'm in a certain state where an RV does count as a domicile, which is oftentimes one of the triggering places where you need to be in order to use castle doctrine, right? Some sort of domicile. Oftentimes it can also be a business or in your car or something like that. It varies from state to state, but let's just choose a domicile, so a home, a place where you're putting your head down at night, all right? Um, all right, so I'm in my RV, and let's say that that RV counts. 
But now let's say I go to a national forest or park. And oftentimes when you go to national forest or parks, typically the law from the state that that park is in will pass through. So a lot of those laws will remain intact. However, it's entirely possible that the national park or forest laws may actually basically kind of filter and interfere with some of those state laws. So maybe as an example, in a federal park, an RV, since it's movable, may not count as a domicile. So if you were outside the national park or forest land, it's entirely possible that Castle Doctrine would apply, but on the National Park or Forest Land, it may not apply. I'm going into that level of detail just to show you folks how different the laws may or may not be depending upon where you are, which is all the more reason to check out and familiarize yourself with uscca.com backslash laws, L-A-W-S, that S at the end is important. That's the fantastic resource that's been developed and is always ongoing as far as being updated to give folks a good crash course resource for their planning of vacationing, traveling, something like that. So you can get your boots on the ground ideas to what are the local carry laws, transport laws, use of, of deadly force laws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all of that stuff is there. And, and uh, we have a full-time person dedicated just to updating that and, and keeping that as current as we possibly can. And Bonnie does a great job. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful out there. So Rick has sent in a question. He asks, when outdoors? as in camping, where is the best place to keep your weapon? Rick, keep your weapon on your person. If you are more than three seconds away from your gun, you are effectively unarmed. So, um, yeah, there's lots of cool places to keep your gun. There's gun safes, there's pouches and holsters and stuff like that, but um, keep your gun accessible. You saw that if you watched our um, Proving Ground 13 there, you know, he, he pre-staged the gun in front of him while he's watching TV, thought he'd be able to get it. Next thing you know, there's a bad guy in between him and the gun. And uh, so that's... Uh, yeah, that uh, live training broadcast really highlighted just how ineffective off-body carry, so to speak. So something where the firearm's in another room, Glove box, of course, being the usual joke as to mm -hmm. where things are always carried. Glove box yeah. carry, right? Um, just how ineffective that can be. And another interesting thing that came up on the live training broadcast with the Proving Grounds is actually one of the folks was carrying without a round in the chamber. Right. And that turned out to be a big deal. Yeah, and th that, that could be a problem. So again, you know, carry in condition one, round in the chamber, safety on, gun secured in a holster that covers the, the trigger and trigger guard, and that's going to be the best situation. But obviously, you, you have to live comfortably and you have to make that decision for yourself. So um, I'm not gonna tell you if there's one best place to put your gun, except on your person where you can get to it very quickly. So Dr. K, we're getting a question from, questions from doctors now, so this is good. Uh, if a US post office is located in a strip mall and you visit a store in that mall, but not the post office, and park in a lot open to any business in the mall, are you violating the federal law? Um, by having a gun in your car in a parking lot that is shared by the post office. I'm going to say no on that one. I do know that it is a federal law that you may not have a gun in your car in the parking lot of a post office. But if the post office is in a strip mall and you park in a parking space that is not designated as owned and operated by the postal service, you are fine because you are not in the post office parking lot. Um, you know, there's going to be lots of legal questions about that if something like this comes to an arrest or a trial or something like that. But that, that's the advice I'm going to give. Don't, don't take your gun into the post office parking lot. But if there's not a sign that says this space reserved for post office business, 
you should be okay. And typically the reason why the post office parking lot is posted as being prohibited or is prohibited is because that's part of the post office property. I think we're assuming, Dr. K, as part of your example, that this strip mall is not owned by the United States Postal Service. At least I've never seen a strip mall owned by the Postal Service. I'm yeah. sure that exists somewhere, but that's part of, I think, part of the question. Yeah, and, and probably <coughs> if they have designated parking spaces, I would assume that if they are renting that parking space for the post office, they will mark that in some way. And, right. and absent that marking, I would assume that you know this is just open to the public and not owned by the post office. Right. And I think a good attorney could probably help me out with that. I hope so. <laughs> so. Uh, Stacy wants to know if I can legally, legally use my firearm if another person, and I love this, just has a knife or similar weapon. Well, I've said this before, I am much more afraid of knives than I am of guns. So, um, yes, you may use deadly force against a knife. Um, you know, true that the person with the knife has to touch you, so if you pull out a knife, I'm going to try to run away um, and, and see how that works. But Yes, a knife never runs out of ammunition. It can cause death or great bodily harm. And if someone attacks you with a knife, I'm going to say, yes, shoot them. Am, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. As long as they have a way of delivering that, that attack to you, there's, it's clear that they're a threat because those are the things you're going to have to be able yeah. to articulate in order to talk about and show in court is, look, it wasn't a knife salesman going door to door and they were just innocuous and they pulled out their steak knife set and then you decided to try to blow them away. Uh, this person was actually indeed a true threat and they had the ability to get at you. They weren't separated by five layers of fencing or something. They were right there. So that's something to all keep in mind. I never thought of the uh, traveling knife salesman. You know, that, that's a new They're one. They're real. Was, yeah. they, they do exist. I, I was going to suggest <laughs> that if, if the person is confined to a wheelchair across the street waving a machete saying he's going to kill you, don't shoot that person. There's, there's no imminent deadly threat there. But um, yeah, if the person has a weapon and opportunity and ability right. to do this, yes, you can use your gun to defend against that. So what about weapons of opportunity? While I'm camping, can I use wasp spray to defend myself? Let's dig into this one, Tom. Wasp spray. Uh, yeah. All I, right. uh, um, you know, it says right on the can, you may not use the wasp spray for anything but its intended use. Right. Uh, that, that could be a federal law that we're dealing with there. Right, so right. I'll let you take it away on, on right. what we're looking at for wasp spray. So this actually came up during our live training broadcast. So just to kind of touch on this, there's a handful of different issues that you need to be thinking of. Let's start with what the law says, since that's what Kevin brought up. Wasp spray is actually a formulated pesticide, and generally speaking, when it comes to environmental protection rules and laws and regulations, it could actually be a finable, it could be an illegal offense to be using uh, uh, wasp spray, and it actually could be a crime too, depending upon what happens, um, to be using wasp spray for something other than, than its intended purpose. So number one, we could be dealing with the fact that it could be illegal. Number two, we're dealing with the fact that this is just the wrong tool for the wrong job. Don't be that person that thinks that the roll of duct tape and the Dremel knife or something is gonna solve all of life's problems. That's not really what wasp spray is for. It's not what it's formulated for. Unlike pepper spray, where we know that this has been tested, we know that this is what it's specifically made for. So number one, if it's lawful in your state to use pepper spray, don't assume it's gonna be lawful to use wasp spray because there could actually be state laws and rules to mm -hmm. regulate the use as well of saying the only kind of chemical you can use may be pepper spray. That's another thing to keep in mind. But Let's just look at the effectiveness. There's really no studies or tests that I'm aware of out there that really goes into the effective use of what wasp spray might result in. Pepper spray, on the other hand, is much more of a known quantity. It's developed and specifically formulated for its stopping power. And importantly, I'm saying stopping power, not killing power, not maiming power, because that brings me to my last point on why wasp spray 
not a good idea. And that's this. When we look at a lot of the laws in many states when it comes to what qualifies as deadly force, all right? Because if we are actually gonna be using deadly force, we need to qualify what is deadly force. Generally speaking, again, check your local listings, but deadly force has to do with the level of force that could foreseeably cause death or great bodily harm. Again, this formulation may vary from state to state, but oftentimes if you look up what's the definition of great bodily harm, yeah. we're looking at something that could create any kind of loss or protracted loss of limb, organ, tissue, anything like that. If you hit somebody in the face, get, you catch them in the eye with some wasp spray, that could do some serious nerve damage to your eyes or something like that. And that actually means that technically, if you have an aggressive prosecutor, they could be yeah. trying to qualify wasp spray as deadly force. So if you're in a pepper spray event, i.e. something that could be less than lethal force that we're yeah. trying to use, pepper spray may be lawful under your state's laws. Wasp spray could arguably be considered virtually the same as using a firearm. And if you don't have the proper self-defense issues in place, if you don't have the CASA doctrine, if you don't have the deadly threat against you and so forth, and if you use deadly force, you could be looking at decades in prison. So wasp spray, wrong call. Don't be the person that thinks that that roll of duct tape can solve all life's problems. Yeah, and, and, and understanding, like you said, the nuances between deadly force and, and non-deadly force. I know that uh, from a law enforcement standpoint, we may use OC, we may use pepper spray against active resistance or its threat. That, that falls into that category right there. It's not deadly force, but active resistance or its threat. And because it's not a permanent it's not causing permanent damage or, or great bodily harm. Right. So, um, and you're spot on in that this stuff hasn't been tested. It's a poison, you know. It, we, right. You, we might be poisoning a person and and unless it's a deadly threat, we, we can't use deadly force to, to take care of that. So. And that would be, aside from the fact that you could be breaking a state or federal law just by using it, period, really what would concern me, not that that doesn't concern me right there, because that right there is a full stop event. But also, just to add on top of that, we're dealing with the fact that it could legally possibly be considered deadly force, and I'm checking yep. out at that point. Yeah, and, and uh, under our membership agreement, we're not, we're not covering the use of wasp spray because you're using it illegally under right. the federal law. So right. you, we, we cover any legal weapon. Wasp spray is not a legal weapon. So um, get yourself a big old can of bear spray, pepper spray. And, and, as and long as it's legal spray. wherever yeah. you are. Yeah, so... <clears throat> Douglas wants to know if you can legally carry handcuffs and use on a person you have down on the ground after an attack. Um, I'm going to go with a hard no on that, Douglas. Um, here's the deal. One, I don't want you getting close to that person who was a deadly threat to begin with. That's why you pulled out your gun, ordered them to the ground, and for whatever magical reason they complied and decided to <laughs> lay down on the ground instead of run away. Um, secondly, when you put handcuffs on a person, I know me as a police officer, when I put handcuffs on a person, that person is now in my care and custody. And I'm responsible for everything that happens to that person from the time I put the handcuffs on until the time I take them off, typically at the jail. So I don't take my hands off that person until they're sit sitting in the back seat of the squad car and buckled in and they're safe and sound. So I don't want private citizens using handcuffs as, as a means of restraining someone. They're, they're a temporary restraint, and I don't want you putting them on there. Tom, any, anything else well, in that I, area? Well, I would take everything you just said, we're commenting on both the physical safety as well as the civil liability aspects, and I just want to build on that a little bit. Two things. Number one, I want you to know two words, false imprisonment, all right? 
Um, this is something that could be coming up. Again, could. I don't know all the circumstances of what we're talking about. But I have seen, as a former state prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, situations where some aggressive store security, things like that, they've been going after somebody who got caught shoplifting. They saw him on camera, you name it. So they zip-tied him, or they, they, in one case, I think they duct-taped their hands together. Uh, and that can be a false imprisonment scenario. In other words, if you lack the legal and lawful capacity to restrain and withhold somebody from their freedom of movement, you might be the one facing the felony charges. That person may, in a really odd way, wind up turning into the victim, believe it or not. And I think that's the last thing that you're intending to have happen. So that's number one, is false imprisonment. Um, number two, the other aspect I'd keep on top of this is the fact that any benefit of the doubt that you may have had that you were not out there trying to seek some sort of deadly force encounter or some sort of bad encounter, frankly, it's going to look really odd to law enforcement, to the responding officers on the scene, uh, especially to the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury. That's just not something that I guess most people do. Most people aren't carrying around rolls of duct tape, zip ties, handcuffs, you name it. Uh, and it's going to look odd. And speaking as a defense yeah. attorney who, who actively represents clients in self-defense situations, I want you to look as normal as possible because otherwise it's one more thing we're going to have to explain. And I assure you, it's one more thing the prosecutor's going to be coming after you for. I mean, Kevin, as a law enforcement <laughs> officer yourself, I guess what would cross your mind if somebody came up and actually had handcuffs on, on someone? I mean, or was, yeah, or was uh, talking about well, it? Well, I want to understand, does this person have a legal right to take someone else into custody? You know, that, that's my question. Um, I'm looking at it as a tactical perspective as well as a, as a safety perspective. Police officers get some very serious handcuff training because if, if you've got someone who is compliant and you get them in a handcuffing position and you move to put handcuffs on them and they suddenly become what we call a no person, it's going to take a while to get those handcuffs on. And honestly, as a private citizen, now you're in a ground fight. You're in a fight with this person. And this person already knows that you have a gun. And what if they're stronger than you and they want to take your gun away? So right. um, stay away from them. Just stay back. Hold them at gunpoint. And Max, I'm going to skip one question down. I'll go back to the question that's above it. Because Pamela then asks, what do you do after you draw your gun and stop the threat? Uh, I'm assuming you stop the threat without firing. Um, do you tell them to leave or you detain them or what? And I'll get into that from my perspective, what I want someone to do if I'm holding them at gunpoint. I want them to stop immediately, and then I want them to lay down on the ground with their arms spread out like an airplane with their face turned away from me. That's what I want, because then I know that they have a hard time getting up from the ground to attack me like that. If they choose not to do that, if I point my gun at them and they decide to end their attack and run away, great, I win. Let them run away. Um, you know, it, from a legal perspective, any, anything that I said, they're wrong. Nope. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> easy enough. So um, we'll move on to the next one, and I'm going to let you answer this one because I'm sure you got a wonderful answer for uh -oh. it. What's the best way to handle the bad situation when you're traveling and you're not near your own attorney? Best way to handle that. Well, one of the advantages if you are a USCCA member, and of course if you're watching this, you are, you do have a network of over 1,000 attorneys. I think it's up to 1,060 and counting. Yeah in all 50 states. So if there is an incident, God forbid, you've dialed 911 and now you've contacted the critical response team, you'll be able to, everywhere is basically gonna be in network for you. So yeah. uh, this isn't like health insurance where if you're out of network, <laughs> buckle up, right? <laughs> um, this is not that situation at all. So you're gonna be able to have the USCCA standing by your side through whatever the next steps, whatever they might be. Yeah, and I think we're up to a couple hundred of them that like we said, we have their cell phone number, you can call them, we'll get them 24 hours a day. If you need an attorney, that's the beauty of USCCA. 
CCA's national coverage. If you're driving from Maine to Kentucky and somewhere along the way in Pennsylvania, you get pulled over and you need an attorney, we'll find you an attorney in Pennsylvania who knows the Pennsylvania laws and will help you there. So USCCA membership is a key to making sure that you're getting the best attorney in the location where you need your attorney. And I think so. it's 700 or 800 attorneys actually are signed up with the critical response team yep. for the 24-7. Wow. And keep in mind, folks, you're not locked into any attorney as well. That's another huge feature. If you don't click or whatever it might be, you can go with whatever attorney you want. So that's mm -hmm. gonna be a huge, huge, huge benefit for yeah, what's out there. You, you don't have to use our attorneys. You can you can use your own attorney, but it's gonna be kind of difficult to find one at two in the morning. You know, <laughs> we, we have one on speed dial, so we'll, we'll help you with that. So right. yeah. um, what should I do if, uh, if an attacker already has a gun drawn on me? Wow, that is an open-ended question. Um, from a tactical perspective, I'm going to ask, Lots of questions about your positioning, where you are, your level of training, stuff like that. Typically, I'm going to say comply, okay? If someone's already pointing a gun at you, comply. Do what you can to talk softly, calm them down, tell them not to shoot you, tell them you're going to help them out, do whatever they, they ask you to do, until such point as you realize that this is going to go bad and, and they've asked you to do something really stupid like get in the van or get in the trunk of the car or something like that. Then we're, then we're going to move to a fight. But I want you to think about this seriously and possibly get some good training about how to remove a weapon from an attacker's hands. Um, without that training, you might be in trouble. With that training, you know, the, the stuff that I've gone through, if I can touch your gun, if I'm within reach of touching your gun, I'm going to take it from you. That's gonna be my first option is to grab that gun and make sure it's no longer pointed at me. And the human hand, gripping on the human hand, really does not have a whole lot of strength to hold that gun in place. So um, get some good training. But, but the first question, the, the first topic on this is gonna be comply with the demands of this person because you probably are not going to be able to draw fast enough to beat them to the trigger. And we don't wanna have you getting shot because you're trying to you know, quick draw on something like that, so. And just to take your response and then reflect that back a few questions back when somebody was talking about handcuffing, keep in mind if you have somebody with some training and you're coming close enough to handcuff them again. Yeah, yeah, if they can get hold of your gun. Right. Yeah, um, you, you got serious problems. So um, let's start with compliance. But again, I'm not gonna tell you to comply to the point of you getting killed. If you start feeling like, you know, oh, now I got to move. When they tell you to move into the back room at a robbery, that's the execution chamber. Now it's time to fight. And they're taking you in the back room to kill you. So maybe you go down fighting instead, or maybe you take the gun away. Um, so there's lots of, lots of answers to that question. And we probably don't have time to go into all of that right now. So if I've never owned a gun and I'm brand new to concealed carry, what should my first steps be? Well, you've obviously done the right thing by joining USCCA and you're watching this member-only broadcast right now. Call somebody here at the USCCA and tell them you want all of the free guides that we offer. They'll get like 70 things or something like that, Max. Um, uh, that, that's the first thing to do is get as much information as you can. Tom, I'll, what, where get did in, you go? Get in touch with a trainer, all right? That's gonna be an absolutely critical step to learn the proper, the safe techniques and procedures for handling, loading, unloading a firearm, proper firearm handling techniques, the rules for, for being safe when involving firearms. We got involved with firearms either for sport or for self-defense, if you're watching this, I assume there's at least a large or healthy self-defense component. The last thing we want is to be able to do harm to ourselves or to a loved one or something like that. Yeah. So, so safety first, folks. Um, if you're brand new to this, find a good trainer. Excuse me. Follow what they have, what they have to tell you. And for that matter, I wouldn't necessarily stop at one. I mean, go to several yeah. different trainers. 
cover sample, learn what you like, take the best ones from each from each part, and then go to the range and practice what you've been taught. Yeah, uscca.com backslash training. We have all sorts of trainers out there who are ready to help you take you from zero to high speed uscca.com backslash training. We'll, uh, we'll get you going on there. And practicing carrying in your home is also another big step, you know, when it comes to actually carrying out in public outside the house. I know that's a huge mental block for lots mm -hmm. of folks that are out there. I always tell people, make sure you have the right belt, the right holster, and then make sure, you know, practice in your house. Just, just walk around with your firearm as though you were out and about, but doing so in your house. Mm -hmm. And if it falls out or something like that, uh, you have the wrong holster, you've <coughs> got the wrong belt, you've got something that's wrong and you need to fix it. Yeah, and, and to that end too, put your gun in your holster and try sitting down in a chair and see where that, where that thing is hitting in the chair when you're sitting there. There's, there's lots of things that uh, um, for first steps before you go out there. So Larry wants to know what kind of first aid supplies and training I should have and where should we keep them? Well, I'm gonna say all of the first aid training that you can get because it helps not just in a concealed carry incident, but all throughout your life, you might need some first aid um, training or might need to use your first aid materials. Um, as a bare minimum, I would really like to see people carrying a tourniquet um, because you know what? Um, if, if there is a shooting and someone you know and love gets hit and the blood is squirting, you're seeing the actual squirts of blood, then you can apply the tourniquet and, and probably save a life that way. Um, barring that, um, if you're getting a first aid kit, don't just make it what we call a boo-boo kit with you know um, a few pieces of gauze and some band-aids and, and some neosporin. I want a good solid trauma kit. We have one here at the USCCA. You can see Concealed Carry Magazine. We have um, a, a medical column in every single issue of Concealed Carry Magazine. Um, and where you carry it, it's where you're comfortable carrying it. You know, I have a little strap that has a tourniquet and some gauze that goes right around my ankle so I don't have to fill up my pockets or my cargo pockets or my jacket or anything like that. Um, that's where I put it. Yeah, and then, you know, take advantage of the resources that are around you as well. You can obviously go out and purchase books and talk to trainers and go to classes because there are classes, just like there are concealed carry classes, there are first, first responder classes. And I don't mean whole courses, I mean just like a day or a weekend. Yeah. So cover and sample what's out there, consume as much as you can, read as much as you can. If you have that friend who's a nurse, a doctor, someone like that, these are obviously a wealth of resources of what should I do if and when this happens. Yes, and come to the Concealed Carry Expo, May 17th through 19th in Pittsburgh, where Anthony Lambert, our columnist from Concealed Carry Magazine, will be conducting a Stop the Bleeding, Start the Breathing um, first aid seminar that you can come and take and understand what you need to do. So, and I think elite members actually have access to uh, some first aid e-learning as part of the membership as oh, well. Oh, yes. So upgrade to elite membership, and then you can get in on our, first, uh, our emergency first aid fundamentals e-learning program that's going on right now. So, well, going on all the time. Going on all the time. It's 24-7. E yeah, it's e-learning. Just click and go. So <clears throat> if you've shot an attacker and severely injured the attacker, should you render first aid? Go. Oh, me, okay. Um, I mean, look, a lot of questions first. Number one, is, are, are you safe? Is the scene safe? I mean, attackers oftentimes travel in packs. I know, again, speaking as a former state prosecutor and criminal defense attorney, as an example, 
virtually every home invasion case that I've been involved in, there were multiple folks. There was the person in the getaway car. There were one or two people who went in. Maybe there's only one person who went into the house, but the other buddy was at that door or window. So just because you may have shot the person and they're down and you feel like they're no longer a threat, which by the way is not an assumption I would make, especially if they have any kind of weapon nearby. And keep in mind, the worst weapon may be the one that you can't see as well. But you don't know who's around that next corner with the baseball bat who wants to cave your face in after you just shot their buddy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what kind of promises or guarantees you can make to yourself and over not only to yourself but to your, your family and your loved ones who are going to be counting on you to be there tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now, that you're going to be there if you go and render first aid. I know that when we've talked about this before, Kevin, I think during the live training broadcast, actually, yeah. you're talking about pathogens and bloodborne yeah. pathogens. Yeah. Well, I mean, what sort of diseases can you come up with if, if someone's leaking blood out all over the place and you get it on you? Those, those are the sort of things that you're probably not thinking about. And I always put it this way, that person right over there who's now laying on the ground with several bullet holes in him because you had to shoot him more than once, that person was such a threat to you that you had to use deadly force to stop them. Why on earth would you want to get close to them now not knowing their medical status or their medical history or anything like that. The best thing to do is call 911 and let the professionals deal with this person. Make sure that you are safe and that you are safe to go home to your family. You are under no moral obligation and no legal obligation in most cases to help this person. You've done your part by calling 911 and you're getting help along the way. What sort of training do you have to help this person? So, And just keep in mind everything that you risk beyond yourself if you do want to go render aid. So ultimately you need to make the right decision for you because you're the one that's gonna have to wake up and stare at yourself in the face. But keep in mind that you want to be able to wake up and stare yourself in the face and not be wearing orange and maybe not be in a wheelchair if you, I mean, there's, yeah. there's all sorts of different issues. Yep. So lots can go wrong if you try to get in close and help somebody like that. So think about it before you do it. Mark wants to know, uh, in a gun-free school zone, all school zones are, are gun-free in the area, um, does that apply to the buildings or also to the grounds if I'm picking up my son from school? Am I even allowed to pull into the parking lot with a firearm and a lockbox inside the car, so forth and so on? I'll let you talk to Wisconsin's gun-free school zone law. The answer is it depends. That's the answer. So um, there are exceptions where you can carry guns on a school property. And there's a whole bunch of them that are going to vary from, from state to state, place to time. So that's number one is there are exceptions. Number two is that you actually in the question did a fantastic job of framing one of the big issues of distinguishing between the school, generally speaking, the actual building or buildings, and then the grounds. We're talking the soccer field, the parking lot, uh, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, sometimes, depending upon where you are, depending upon the state that you're at, depending upon whether or not you have a concealed carry license and the status of the laws, it may be lawful for you to, for instance, go on to school grounds with a weapon, um, provided that maybe it's only left in your car, provided that maybe you're properly licensed, but it probably is not going to be lawful for you. And keep in mind, in most states, it's not even going to be lawful for you to do that. But mm -hmm. it's probably not going to be lawful for you to go into the school, barring some sort of major exception. Yep. I know that in the state of Wisconsin, you can drop your child off at the curb with your gun in your holster, but you can't get out of your car. You can't walk your kid to the school door. You can't do anything like that. You, you, you can be that close to the school with your gun, but don't get out of your car. Don't do any, anything else uh, under that situation. But that's just here in Wisconsin. Right. right. And, and yeah. keep in mind as well that you also then have, you know, a thousand feet of a school. So now we're talking about off grounds on yeah. public land, 
on the streets, on the sidewalks. So there's multiple different zones of mm -hmm. theoretical protection. We all know exactly how much protection that offers, all right? Mm -hmm. But there's theoretically different levels of zones of protection that are out there. And that does create different types of legal duties, restrictions, and prohibitions. And you need to be mindful and knowledgeable of whatever they are in your state, wherever it is that you may be traveling to or visiting, whatever that is, because Lord knows you're going to be held responsible for them. And it's impossible to cover all the different formulations here, but just be mindful. you got to check out to see what those laws are wherever you are. Yep, absolutely. Another question popped up. If I'm questioned following a self-defense incident, <laughs> that's funny, you will be questioned. So let's start that one with when I'm questioned following a self-defense incident, how do I best cooperate with law enforcement officials during the questioning? while retaining my privacy and my rights. And you talk wonderfully about this, so I'm just gonna sit back and, and bask in the glory that is Tom Grief. Well, it's just residual glory because you're dripping with your charm yeah, and right. charisma yeah. and intelligence. Um, look, the only way, the only reason why if question would be appropriate is because you've fled the scene and the police are looking for you as, by the way, an active shooter situation. So that could create some, some safety issues among different yeah. legal implications. Uh, that could cast a shadow across your case and everything you may have to say. Look, generally speaking, you want to be able to alert to the, okay, number one, please show up, survive that encounter, all right? Follow their commands. If they say, put your gun down, which invariably they will, and hopefully the gun's yes. already down when the police, when you start to see the police show up, put it down, move slowly, do whatever it is, try to listen to one person, focus in on them and follow their commands exactly what they're doing. You will almost certainly be handcuffed, you're gonna be put on the ground. Keep in mind that those men and women who have put on the uniform, who have put on the badge, they wanna go home with no new holes in their body, all right? We can all appreciate that fact because you don't want to either. So follow their commands, survive that initial encounter. If the bad guys had friends or if the bad guy him or herself took off, great, give them a description, wherever they went, point out the evidence. If they dropped a knife, if they dropped a screwdriver that was being used as an attacking weapon, point out the evidence that's gonna be favorable because those, that evidence needs to be processed and collected as part of the scene. But after we've done that and they start asking you more and more and more kind of guilt-seeking questions about yourself, at that point, you know it's time to raise your rights, all right? And keep in mind, you can always talk to law enforcement later after you've had the opportunity to speak with an attorney. But I assure you, as an attorney who's been here and dealt with these kind of cases, your adrenaline is pumping. You have thoughts that are just ricocheting off the inside of your head. This probably happened at night. You're probably gonna be tired. You may not have eaten recently. You are not gonna be in your best state of mind and you're gonna be giving what's gonna be one of the most grueling, intense, and high stakes interviews of your entire life. That is not the time to do it, folks, I assure you. This is the time when you need to be able to gather your thoughts after you've given them, look, here's the evidence, this is where they went, this is what they looked like. You're gonna be inevitably booked in, you may be spending a night or two in jail, I don't care, all right? This is where you need to keep your mouth shut, raise your right to an attorney. That's very different than raising your right to silence. If you raise your right to silence, law enforcement, by and large, can keep badgering you, they can keep talking to you, they can, they can, there's actually limited circumstances in most recent case law where they can actually use that silence against you. However, if you raise your right to an attorney, that's an entirely different set of circumstances. Now keep in mind that only you can raise your rights. This is not Hollywood, the media, television, where I as the attorney can bust into the sheriff's department and carry my styrofoam cup of coffee, slap my briefcase down on the table and tell the detectives to scram. 
Doesn't work like that in real life. Would you say scram? Scram, yeah. scram, definitely very, scram. Very forties. I think scram yeah. or beat it. Yeah. That might be another good one too. Beat um, it flat foot. Beat it flat foot. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to think about how I want to commit <laughs> my felony someday. But uh, until that time, unless you want your attorney to become your pod mate, your cellmate, that's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how many times I call or fax in the fact that you're raising your rights. You have to raise your rights for you. And this is actually talked about on the back of your member card. So if you have your member card around, if you ever flipped it around and read the back of it, it actually goes through a lot of these details. But if you remember nothing else, just say, look, I want my attorney. Be polite, be respectful. Keep in mind this is a stressful situation for the officers as well. But you want your attorney. Don't answer any questions about your attorney. Don't talk to other people in jail. Don't be placing phone calls to friends, family, and loved one and tell them everything that happened. You've called a critical response team or you called your, your friend, family, or loved one who hopefully will call the critical response team and then sit tight knowing that help is on the way. And, and to go back to the beginning, you need to understand a little bit about what happens when, uh, during police response, when, when the police arrive on the scene. Police officers have very limited information when they arrive on the scene, especially a gun call or, or a shooting. So it starts with that 911 call, whatever information you're providing to them. So try to give a good description of yourself. The last gun call I went to, I was given an address on South Main Street saying that the caller complained that the man next door had just threatened his daughter with a gun. So I, I called for other officers to come with me. I'm going to a house that I've never been to before, knowing that there's somebody there with a gun who threatened someone else. That's all I got. So I'm coming to that with a completely different perspective. You who have been involved in this shooting, you saw everything and you know what's going on. Police officers getting there don't. And our first job is to secure the scene, to make sure that we are safe and everybody else is safe. And when I say we are safe, we do that because if we get hurt, we can't help anybody else. So we are safe, then everybody else is safe. Then we start figuring out what's going on. So please comply with those orders. And I know you'll probably want to be telling people what's happening or where the bad guy went or something like that. But take a breath and let everybody understand that this is a dangerous situation and we're slowing it down so that nobody else gets hurt. Right. And like I said, you will have your opportunity to speak if you and your attorney decide that it's the right thing to do. But for God's sake, just take your time with it. If officers are involved in a self-defense shoot, they're typically given 48, 72 hours, something like that, and the, the ability to have access and talk to an attorney before they actually give any kind of statement. You deserve the exact same rights that officers do, but only if you use them. I can't raise them for you. You have to raise them yourself. All right, moving on to the next question. This guy clearly just joined us. Where can I find information about concealed carry laws in my state? Come on, Carl. Tom, tell them where you can find it. USCCA.com backslash laws. That's where you want to go. Laws with an S at the end, folks. And that's that fantastic reciprocity map that Bonnie puts together, maintains, and updates on a regular basis. Keep in mind, that's a great crash course. For the most detailed and up-to-date knowledge, check your local listings for the actual laws, whether it's the state DOJ's website, something like that. But that's a fantastic resource for rapid Rapid answers, rapid responses yeah. to get, get your hands around what's out there. Yeah, and, and it's a color-coded map, too. So if you go to your state and click on your state and say, I have a permit from my state, and then click on what other state you want to go to and click go, it will give you red or green where you're good. You know, yep, you're safe here. We have reciprocity. Um, it, it, it's a very good resource. And um, state by state, and, and now, because I ask for it, a federal parks update. So what's happening in the national parks and things like that. So. Hmm. All you got to do is ask, and they put it out there. Again, there you go. 
dripping with charm. Dripping with charm. I can feel, I think some of it hit my shoes actually. I apologize for that. uh, Send me the bill. Um, (laughs) At what point during encounter with a threat should you call 911? As soon as it's safe to do so would be my answer. I mean, look, I'm not putting down my handguns so I can pick up and rotary dial 911 or something like that unless I'm convinced because literally, folks, you're betting your life and maybe the life of whoever it is you're protecting as well. You're betting all those lives possibly on the fact that it, you can now split your attention. This is something where if your spouse, if your loved one is there, have them make the call on, on the cell phone. But again, this is something yeah. where you need to have the conversations about what is appropriate to talk about, what you shouldn't be talking about as well. You need to make sure that everyone else is as trained up on this and as knowledgeable about, about this as possible. Otherwise, all your training, knowledge, and expertise that you are accumulating may not be of any, of any use. Yeah, and uh, you know what, what we teach people, what we learn at the Law Enforcement Academy and what we teach others about this is, is immediately following a shooting, move to a position of tactical advantage. Get to someplace safe, get to cover. Get, make sure you're scanning around for other people who are there. And then when you realize you're safe or you feel like you're, you're pretty safe, then of course it's a race to 911. You wanna be making that call and becoming the complainant, but not at risk of your own personal safety. So, okay. good. Be safe, survive, be safe. Yep. Augie wants to know when traveling across state lines, how should we store our gun? Store is different than carry, so I'm gonna let Tom take this away. Right, so here's the question. Are we transporting or are we carrying, Augie? That's gonna be the most important thing yep. because if we're transporting, Unloaded, encased, inaccessible in the trunk. That's transport. Not in the glove box, not under the seat, not in the center console. That's going to be almost certainly construed as carry in those states. All right. So remember that also if you're transporting, it needs to be lawful in your state of origin, wherever it is that you started that jurisdiction, as well as your destination, and try not to dwell in any places where it may be prohibited. That's not where I'm stopping for the night renting the hotel room. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, check your local listings. We need to know what's going on there. So, uh, it's winter and it's cold. No, it's springtime. We shouldn't be asking winter questions now. <laughs> what kind of gloves and clothing should you consider and still be able to defend yourself effectively? Well, I'm going to suggest that you wear the lightest gloves, which will keep your hands warm and still allow you to manipulate your gun. So, no matter how silly you think it looks, put your gloves on and go to the range and try to manipulate your firearm with your gloves on. Um, as far as clothing, wear whatever you want, but again, practice at home, dry fire practice, accessing that firearm. Can you dig it out from under five layers of clothing? Do you want to change your holster or something like that? And consider this too, do you want to change your ammunition choice when you're dealing with extra heavy clothes during the winter months? You might want to go to a heavier bullet that's going to penetrate a little bit, that you're, penetrate heavier clothing a little bit better. Your hollow points might fill up with down jackets and other materials, things like that. So um, that, this is not something that I can just give in a sound bite you know, to, to make this work. There's lots of questions. Um, we've got some answers in Concealed Carry Magazine. Look there, um, and we will do our best in our, in our comfort and style section to talk about what clothing you can wear um, to help you better access your firearm or to at least practice with that. So. And if I could just highlight one thing that he said, it's practicing the drawing, all right? This is something where you want to make sure that your firearm is utterly unloaded. Make sure there's no loaded magazines around that you could actually get mixed up. Load it with a snap cap. That's to say a dummy round, okay? Not Mm -hmm. live ammunition. And practice in, in your own home. 
What is it like to actually draw and fire? Draw and fire. If possible, time yourself. Understand what's different if I wear this shirt versus that shirt versus this sweater, this, this sweatshirt, this jacket. Because you're going to realize very quickly how small differences can actually lead to a, a huge difference in outcome. Um, and remember that the shots that count are the shots that hit. All right. So I'm not saying that shots that otherwise all shots don't count otherwise. It could scare away the bad guy and so forth. Mm. But at the end of the day, if your life is coming down to it and the chips are down, I want to make sure that I'm putting my rounds on target. So don't just randomly spray. You need to make sure that you're, when you're dry firing, you're taking accurate, deliberate shots as well, if possible. Yeah, you're, you're still responsible for the bullets that are going down range. So right. um, if you miss and, and little Susie happens to be on a playground, um, you're going to be having some more discussions with detectives after that. So. If I am disabled and unable to run from my attacker, at what point do I have the right to use my weapon? I'm going to just say one word, sooner. Go ahead. Right. Well, again, <laughs> it comes back down to whether or not there is a deadly threat against you. All right. So when we start talking about duties to retreat, which I think is kind of what you're asking about, keep in mind that certain states, there could be a duty to retreat or a soft duty to retreat. What does that mean? In other words, before you actually are allowed to use deadly force to respond to a deadly threat made against you, you may have a duty to retreat. So in other words, if there's a way that you could run down the street to escape or go out the back door rather than to defend yourself or your loved ones in your kitchen, you may have a duty to do so. And keep in mind that there's this little thing called jury instructions. So I'm gonna let you folks in here on a dirty little secret about how the justice system works. You have the statutes. That's the actual law that typically the legislature drafts and puts together. You can read those online, right? There's cases. This is what's been decided by various appellate, your state Supreme Court and federal appellate and Supreme Courts. This creates binding precedent on how are we supposed to interpret those statutes and also whether or not those statutes are constitutional and how does the Constitution layer in and become involved here. But there's another little big piece of that equation, and that's jury instructions. Jury instructions is basically, what's the plain English interpretation and reading of how am I supposed to take what is usually a very technical and garbledy gook definition of this 50-page case or this very oddly written and worded statute, which really isn't written for the public, believe it or not. It's typically written, or frankly, by attorneys for attorneys. Mm -hmm. But the jury instructions are going to be plain English. What are we supposed to do? The reason why it's called the jury instruction is because if you're actually in some sort of trial, these are the instructions verbatim that the judges will be giving the jury on how are they supposed to interpret and imply the law. So in most states, you're able to look up what the jury instructions are. I'm going to pick on Wisconsin since that's, that's where we're at. By statute, there is no duty to retreat in Wisconsin. However, if you actually read the jury instruction, you'll see very quickly that it actually advises the jury, it says something to the effect of, although there is no duty to retreat, you may consider it when you're deliberating on the case. Mm -hmm. yeah. What are you supposed to do about that? So yeah. there's no duty to retreat, but the jury is going to have that thrown out in front of them and they're going to be thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I'm throwing that out to you folks is it's something to keep in mind when your own training, your own preparation, when your own research is also familiarize yourself. If it's me, I'm looking at the jury instructions to see exactly if someday, God forbid, not that any of us ever want there uh, to, to be in this particular situation, but God forbid, what 
are there going to be the last words that the jury is going to be hearing if they're going to be deliberating this case or a case of a loved one? Um, because that's going to be big. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why we always encourage people to talk to your attorney before you're making any other statements like that. Because you need to reasonably articulate why you did what you did. And if the fact is that you, know, you have just recently had hip replacement surgery and you're using a walker and the only place you could get away was down a flight of stairs, Yep, you get to draw your gun and at least threaten force to try to make people stop sooner. But you have to be able to tell that to your attorney, and your right. attorney has to be able to, to utilize that in your defense. So um, make sure that you're thinking about what you're doing and why you're doing it. But otherwise, we're still talking about the self-defense laws as they exist for everybody. So in other words, can I articulate that there was, for instance, a reasonable threat of deadly force or great bodily harm or something against me? And if so, then compliant with whatever your states are, check your local listings, then you may be able to use deadly force back regardless of whether or not you're in a wheelchair. But Kevin's absolutely right. The wheelchair may allow you under certain circumstances to use that force sooner than otherwise you would be able to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what's the best place to put your gun after a shooting before the police come? Or maybe when the police are arriving? This question has me just a little bit confused. Um, if your gun is out and you've been involved in a shooting, keep your gun out Again, bad guys run in packs. We might be looking at, at a problem with somebody else coming until you know you're safe. Now, red and blue lights, you hear the sirens, you start hearing people shouting. Then I want you to just put your gun down on the ground and show me your hands. That, you know, it, when, the, when the squad car rolls up and you see the red and blue lights, you know that the cavalry has arrived. And you might not be perfectly safe, but putting that gun down at that point and then putting your hands up and waiting for further instructions, that's, that's what I'd like to see. At that time, because look, life, is, life is, a, is a dangerous thing. There's always threats to you basically anywhere, at any time, right? Mm -hmm. um, but at that point, I'd say that the larger threat to you is, is not the bad guys who inevitably have fled the scene and are as fast as they can scurry away. It's the good guys at that point who are gonna confuse you for a bad guy. So exactly what Kevin said, at that point, as soon as, as law enforcement arrives at the scene, if it's me, I'm slowly placing the gun on the ground and making sure my hands are up and I'm following all their commands. Yeah, I've, I've actually been to shooting schools that made us drop our weapons on the ground um, just to get us in the habit of if someone tells you drop your gun, yep, okay, fine. You know, At that point, I don't care about scuffs on my gun. I don't want bullet holes in my body. So. Exactly. Um, you can replace the gun. Yeah. What things should you carry when outside the home at all times? Wow, there's, there's some misplaced modifiers in here, and as an editor, I'm, I'm really not liking the, the sequencing of this question. Um, I think what they're asking about is their everyday carry gear and what should they carry. Um, I'm going to say a firearm with ammunition and possibly spare ammunition, and I would really like people to have a flashlight. Um, a knife, you know what? I'm never going to use a knife to defend myself. If I have to use deadly force, I'm going to use my firearm. My knife is for opening letters and boxes and, and you know, other, other knife-type things. Um, for me, that would be the bare minimum. What about you what, what, on the everyday carry list? Well, you know, as somebody who doesn't have a law enforcement background, I would absolutely say your firearm, I would say the best holster and belts, that's all part of the rig as far as what's there. I carry a flashlight, not on person, I carry a flashlight in my truck, and my vehicle. I can't tell you how many times I've used that thing, um, but I, to be honest, I rarely carry that on my person. I'm certainly not, not you know, looking side-eye at you for doing that. I mean, that's fantastic. I think a lot of it also varies depending upon 
where do you typically go? If you're in a rural area where there's no lighting, that flashlight could be a key piece of gear. If you're in more of a suburban or urban area where there's typically good lighting or at least better lighting or some lighting at night, mm -hmm. Different situation. I think, to me, I think a lot of this is certainly your firearm, but you need to make sure that you're ready to adapt to whatever it is, wherever you are. Yeah, I, I really like having a handheld flashlight um, pretty much wherever I go um, because it works as a force option. If you're, you know, moving into a parking garage and you hear a noise and you shine a flashlight on it, typically that gets a bad guy's attention. It's like, okay, my, the element of surprise is gone. And also you shine that flashlight directly in someone's eyes. <laughs> it's, it's a rude thing to do, but you know what? You go ahead and try to attack me if you can't see me. I, I think I have the advantage at that point. Especially so. with all the super bright flashlights yeah, you can get yeah. these days. <laughs> There's some, some good ones out there. Yeah. Um, oh, look at that. What about flashlights on your firearm versus carrying a flashlight in addition to your gun? Um, I have a light and laser equipped to my everyday carry gun. And uh, I also have a handheld flashlight. Um, the difference is that if I am looking for something and I need to light up the area, I am not searching with a loaded flashlight. So um, th that's one of the reasons there. Um, and there are some old school guys who will argue with me all day long about the fact that I have a light on my gun and the bad guy's just gonna shoot right at the light and he's gonna hit me. Um, I, We'll argue about that. I, I would much rather have the light on my gun so that I can see the target and it is illuminated well and I have target identification and I know what's going on. I'm not sneaking up on anybody with, you know, right. he can see your light coming. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not a sniper sneaking right. up to shoot him. He already knows I'm there and he knows we're in a fight. He probably knows we're in a fight before I know we're in a fight. Exactly. So. Exactly. And, and keep in mind, I mean, if you've ever, of course, been in a super dark room, if you ever tried out some of these super bright flashlights, let your eyes adjust to the darkness and then shine that light in your face. Make sure it's safe to do so. Some of these flashlights are so bright it may not be safe, but if you've ever had someone shine a bright flashlight at you, of course, when your eyes have adjusted to the dark, good luck hitting anything at that yeah, point. Yeah, and if you're using your flashlight as a force option and you shine it in someone's eyes, immediately take a step one way or the other because the last place they saw you is where they're going to send their attack. And so you move out of the way and double bonus, you have, you have now a really good tactical advantage. So what defense would I have if three thugs attack me and I kill one, but the others say I started the attack? You mean when the others say you started yeah. the attack? Uh, because that's what's yeah. going to happen. I mean, look. Yeah. I, every, I wasn't doing anything. He just came at me. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Every single self-defense case I've been involved in, or, or nearly all of them, I'd say, um, the bad guy has, has claimed to be the good guy. And the problem is that they have a lot of advantages. They have some disadvantages, but they have a lot of advantages. And the biggest one being experience, all right? You are trying to make up the experience and, and close that gap by being here, by engaging in all the wonderful resources that you have as part of your membership, by going to training and all that other kind of stuff. But there's one big thing they have, it's experience, and it's experience in the justice system. They know how it works, folks. They know what to tell cops. They know what not to tell cops. Um, it just is what it is. These are bad people, and they're not afraid to lie and be manipulative, whether it's under oath, at the scene, you name it, and I assure you, they will, all right? It's one of the frustrating things that law enforcement has to deal with is they'll be getting the story from one person but not the other person, which is all the more reason why, look, you need to make sure that if and when you're gonna tell your side, you nail it 100% right. Because when they pull the cameras, if they've got some sort of witness that are out there, they need to make sure that as many facts, because they're gonna, they're gonna fact check to see 
who's telling the truth here, right? Because certain things they're going to be able to corroborate, other things they're not. And they're going to try to figure out who seems to be able to have the more corroborated story, because that's, of course, the person I'm going to trust on the facts that we cannot corroborate. So I assure you, those two thugs that you described in your question, they are going to lie. If they're found, there's a good chance that they're going to just disappear, all right? They're going to blend back into to the urban jungle. They're going to blend back into the landscape, wherever it is that you are, rural America, uh, downtown America, you name it. Um, but if they're not, they're going to lie. Yeah. And they're going to say that you attacked them, you tried to rob them. Um, and that's where your corroborating witnesses, your friends, your family, your loved ones, any kind of cameras that are around, this is all the more reason to have that attorney getting there as soon as possible or responding as soon as possible to gather evidence from that pharmacy store that has all the cameras everywhere, you name it. Yeah, and, and understand too that it, people typically in this situation, the you call them bad people, you know, um, we're not allowed to say that, they're frequent flyers. Frequent flyers, yeah. yeah. Um, Mopes, the, the, yeah. to use another old yeah, term. The, the, the people um, who will be, and here's another good term, known to law enforcement, no, law enforcement. we have, we have uh, uh, previous information about people who typically commit crimes and we've probably talked to them before in our, in our jurisdiction or area, but you're right, if there's three guys and you shoot one, count on the other two probably taking off. Right. Um, if they don't and you're holding them at gunpoint and they decide to wait for the police, well, yeah, you're right. They're, they are going to be lying. So They're um, going to be lying. Yeah. And hopefully their records and that experience can then be used against them because, oh, by the way, they've been convicted of 12 crimes over the last six years. And, you know, law enforcement's going to be aware of that and they're going to be hopefully take that into consideration. Yeah. yeah. So next question up from Greg. What should you do if you fear a threat may return to do you harm after you scare them off? Um, again, move to a position of tactical advantage. Um, if you're outside in a parking lot, go back in the store. Um, do something like that to help keep yourself and your family safe. Um, any other topics yep. on that one? Absolutely. Just keep in mind that when you're at the scene, you are creating evidence. This is part of the advantage, something we haven't really talked about today, but I've, we've talked about a ton in the past, using that loud command language of yep. back away, don't yep. move, back away, stop attacking me. Because people who may not, they may not see anything, but they'll hear you say that, and it's going to help to corroborate who is the actual person being attacked here. Um, but absolutely, you need to protect yourself. That's number one. Yeah, and this rolls right into um, what looks like it's going to be the final question for us this time. Do you have any advice to not get taken out by another good guy after you stop an attack? And one of the things that I, I stress to people all the time is verbalize, okay? You want to turn bystanders into witnesses. If there, someone is attacking me and I just pull out my gun and start shooting and the first sound that a bystander hears is the gunshot and they turn, yeah, the guy in the, guy in the really good-looking vest and wonderful <laughs> red tie just shot that guy for no reason. It's very dapper, yeah, by yeah. the way. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah. Th that's going to be their testimony. That's going to be their statement to the police. But if they hear me say, get back, leave me alone, don't touch me, now, you know, there's, at least they're going to tell cops, yeah, they were arguing about something. I don't know what was going on, but the, the right. guy in the really good-looking tie was telling the other guy to leave. Really so, good-looking tie with yeah. the wonderful cheekbones. That was the guy who, yep. was, who was the victim here. So, yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to that point, I can just corroborate that with exactly what Kevin said. Of I've had cases where the good guy has fired a shot, and that's when the people then turn to look to see what's going on. And all they see is the good guy holding the bad guy at gunpoint or whatever yep. it might be. And they'll easily confuse the two. Yeah. And so if we take that one step further, if it, if it is a, a rapid mass murder, an active shooter type event, make sure that you're not looking like the bad guy. And when I say that, looking like the bad guy, in, in an event like that, the bad guy is 
typically standing upright and, and pointing his gun in many different directions and firing shots. I want you to keep your gun in a low ready position unless you're actively engaging this shooter and trying to stop them. And depending on what you want to do, if you want to run to the sound of the gunfire and try to stop things, or if you want to take cover and protect your family, keep your gun in a subdued situation so that you don't look like the bad guy. And again, say things that show you are trying to help, like get out of here, go run, hide, call the police, do something like that. Because bad guys are not giving advice. They're not giving life-saving advice at the scene of a crime. If you're doing that, that really puts you in a good position to make sure that people know you're one of the good guys. Yeah, and, and shouting and using that command language of stop, back away, something like that if somebody's trying to rob you in a parking lot or something. Hopefully, number one, that person, once they understand that you're not going to be the easy mark, hopefully that gives them a, you know what, I should get out of here. Yeah. Number two, it'll hopefully draw attention to what's going on from someone else to call 911. And number three, it'll hopefully create that key evidence so that if and when the bad guy escapes and gets taken into custody, that, and they say that you were robbing them, well, that's interesting because you were the one saying back away, things like yeah. that. And, and at the same time, um, no matter how scared you are or upset you are or angry you are, watch your language. It's the bad guys who are, who are using the vulgar language and things like that. And when it comes back around to testimony, you were just saying, you were just giving commands, get away, not throwing in the extra expletives trying to really yeah. encourage them. The 80-year-old retired school teacher uh, on your jury is going to appreciate the fact you were not the one dropping the expletives, trust me. <laughs> there you go. Well, that pretty much sums it up, folks. Uh, we're done for now, but uh, Tom, I do want to give you the opportunity because you're so tech savvy about Google uh, Google rewards or reviews or something <laughs> like that. Um, you you want to talk about that. Don't yeah, you? so just really quickly, folks, if you feel like you got something great out of this video, please, 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 I'm a practicing criminal defense attorney with the largest criminal defense law from this state, something that would really benefit us and allow us to continue to deliver this free content for all of our fantastic members here is if you see a button that says leave me a review, leave Tom Grieve a review, please, please, please do so. It's absolutely free to do. It's gonna bring you to a Google page. Keep in mind that it's gonna ask you to leave a number of stars for us. This is the internet, folks. Four out of five stars is kind of a failing grade. If you felt like we did a good job or even an okay job, I'd please ask for that five-star credit and leave a comment letting us know how we did. This is the sort of stuff that allows us to continue and for me to be here so that I can keep delivering all this content. So if you felt like you got something, please do that. You can also Google us, grievelaw.com, G-R-I-E-V-E, Grieve Law. Don't go to our website, but you're going to the Google Play. So if you Google Grieve Law, you're looking for the amount of stars in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. Scroll down a bit, you'll see write a review. Write us a review, we'd love to have it. I do read and respond to every single one of these reviews personally. So I look forward to reading them. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to leave them. And thank you again, Tom, for being here. We'll probably be doing this again another month or something like that. So um, just to make Max happy, as my therapist says, our time is up. So. Thank you all very much for watching. I'm glad that we can do this for you as your member-only benefit. And uh, remember, the, uh, the, the higher you are up on the scale, elite members get more benefits and get to watch this stuff over and over again. So please consider upgrading your membership to an elite membership. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Thanks, folks.